0: Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. Every podcast I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Frank Weislow about his book, Tales of Imperial Russia, The Life and Times of Sergei Vita, 1849-1915. to 1915. When it comes to Russia's great reformers of the 19th century, Count Sergei Vita looms large. As a minister to both Alexander III and Nicholas II, Vita presided over some of the most important economic and political developments in the old regime's last quarter century. As finance minister, he oversaw the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway, as a diplomat, he was Russia's chief negotiator of the Portsmouth Peace Treaty that ended the, his country's disastrous war with Japan. As Prime Minister, vitte authored the October Manifesto, which crowned a series of sweeping reforms of Russia's political system with a parliament, the State Duma. But as Frank Weissel emphasizes in his biography, Tales of Imperial Russia The Life and Times of Sergei Witte, 1849 1915, witte was also a great storyteller as exemplified in his memoirs the notes of count witte Weislow shows in this fascinating book how Vita's stories reveal the times of the man as a man of the times witte was an archetypical new russian torn by his affinity for the conservatism of the russian elite and his recognition that those very values were fetters on his nation's modernization at the same time witte's stories reveal a man prone to masculine hero worship gossip vindictiveness An embellishment of his own role in Russia's high politics. For more discussion on the life and times of Sergei Vita, here's my interview with Frank Weislow. Hi, Frank. Hi, Sean. Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk about your new book, Tales of Imperial Russia, The Life and Times of Sergei Vita, 1849 to 1915.
1: It's very much my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you.
0: Well, just to start off the interview,
1: tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I am an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University. I was born in the Midwest, was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, where I first um, turned on to Russian history in the um, classes of William Rosenberg. Um, I went to graduate school at Columbia university where I had the good fortune of being a student of Leopold Ameson's and also studied with, uh, Mark Ryiff with, uh, Steve Cohen, um, with Moshe Levine. That's quite some company you kept. That's quite some company company. It was a, a, a a luck of our uh, generational demographic. Um, my, uh, my first job upon graduation from uh, Columbia was, uh, was Vanderbilt. And um, I uh, received tenure here for a first book that was published with Princeton Reforming Rural Russia State, Local Society, and National Politics, 1855 1914, which was really a study of bureaucratic reform in the late empire, questions of political culture social groups and, um, and mentalite, it reflected a set of intellectual and paradigmatic concerns also of a generation, particularly that generation that was engaged in the study of, of, of social history. Um, uh, the, uh, the Vita project uh, has just been in a period of gestation for a good long time. Um, and largely traces out um, a, um, uh, the, the, <laughs> the historical events of the disappearance of the country that once upon a time all of us studied um, the Soviet Union and then um, develops over the course of the, the next two uh, decades. Um, I, uh, I pride myself on being a, a good undergraduate teacher and have a, a series of undergraduate teaching awards here at Vanderbilt where I've I've taught Russian history in a variety of of formats. Um, I've taught in England um, as well at uh, Leeds University Um, and for the last five years have also taken on an administrative gig of sorts. I'm the dean of the uh, Martha Rivers Ingram Commons here. It's a residential college for all freshmen at at Vanderbilt where um, I'm charged to oversee the first year experience and really sort of. Um, educational projects that extend the life of the classroom beyond the classroom and into the living and learning communities of the commons. So, um, I, uh, I actually finished uh, Tales of Imperial Russia while I was in residence uh, here at the Commons because I also live on campus. Mm-hmm. Wow! Something called the Dean's Residence, a very um, uh, capacious. Uh, Residents to be sure, the um, Hermitage, Some call it <laughs> insiders, at least. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably biographically um, uh, who I
0: am. Well, how did you come to write a biography on Vita?
1: Well, um, uh, truth be told, um, in the in the, the late 1980s, when I was uh, finishing the first book and casting around for another project, I also um, had um, two young children. And I was looking for a, a project that actually wouldn't <laughs> – I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this um, out, out loud on, a, um, on, on, on the Internet. I was looking around on a project that wouldn't take me for long periods of time to the Soviet Union where I'd have to be away from the family.
0: Well, I think that's a concern for most who have children.
1: I think it is, too. Um, uh, I… Uh, the, the Vita memoirs and, you know, more broadly, the, the archive that he organized and that support those memoirs, all of that, of course, was at the Bakhmietev Archive at, at at Columbia, where plainly I had contacts. And um, Vita had been a major character in my first book and someone that I was, needless to say, as we all are, if you study the period, you can hardly avoid finding him. Um, Vita uh, was... Uh, character of continuing interest for, for me. Given that his papers, his memoirs were available at Columbia and through a series of moves, um, I was able to actually get hard copy of the original manuscripts. Oh, wow. That really made you know, the project extremely enticing. And plus, of course, the, the, the only biography of Vita that was really extant at the time was von Lawa's, in many ways still excellent, excellent study on Sergei Witte and the industrialization of Russia, but that of course was a book that was published in the 1960s that I cut my teeth on as an undergraduate. So, so plainly there was room for uh, for another book. So I would say that you know that what drove me toward the project was the availability of source material in the United States. Um, a first book that put me in. A general zone that made Vita interesting um, uh, to me generally, and then the challenge of writing the story of this guy's life. It was also a time when, of course, 1988, 1989, when bureaucratic reform was very much on everyone's mind because Gorbachev was in the middle of of Perestroika. So there was, especially, so how does one justify to grant agencies, and at that time, of course, the United States was still funding Soviet studies, um, how does one justify um, spending um, money to support research on late imperial Russia? Uh, that was a, um, a standard game at the time in some ways. How, is, how does one justify to grant agencies that are interested in, um, in Cold War? Uh, and, and contemporary politics how do, you know? How does one justify studying history Gorbachev and Witte were an, a natural match so I found myself really thinking about well you know also I'll write the biography of arguably the last great statesman of imperial Russia and it has analogs and importance for the USSR of course then the USSR disappears um, and that, that argument of course then doesn't hold a whole lot of water nor should it um, but it, previously it had and, you know this this change mm-hmm.
0: well it's a quite it's quite advantageous that it's come out now because when i was in russia last year i was struck by it, at academic bookstores how many books are coming out reevaluating the late SARS period and vita and stolipin uh, of course play prominently in that reevaluation
1: and i and i and this is certainly one of the things that began to happen for me as as well and there i would credit you know what i really think is a historiographical revolution in, in our own field. So the, if there was a downside of the collapse of the Soviet Union for people of my generation, the upside, of course, was that it created a, a, a landscape for innovation and creative historical research in a whole variety of topical areas that had either been ignored completely or um or really hadn't been investigated to the same degree as then became possible as we moved into the decade of of the 1990s and 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 so i would say that as the project began to develop what became clear was that that vita provided a focal point for that reinterrogation of the late imperial period um, that, that what was important about a biography was not simply, especially, of course, when granting agencies aren't, aren't buying this argument, um, was, was not simply the, the, the opportunity to write the life story of a great statesman. And he had done such a good job of writing that story that people found the whole project suspect for that reason. How would you ever base an investigation of his life on a set of memoirs which were so plainly constructed? to tell um his own story to posterity that that really what was interesting about the memoirs when placed in in this context of historiographical innovation and, and, and transformation was the opportunity those memoirs provided to reflect upon what vita spent so much time reflecting upon as he dictated and wrote these things That the social and cultural topography of the era in which he lived. Well, I'm going to have you go into the, more of that in
0: a bit, but before we go on to to the importance of the memoir and its importance to your story, why don't you talk about uh, a bit about who Sergei Vita was?
1: Sergei Vita, at one level, is, together with Pyotr Stalipin, arguably the, um, the greatest, uh, one of the two greatest statesmen of the late imperial period, um, he is uh, the empire's Bismarck and Gorbachev, um, statesman, financier, reformer. Um, uh, any researcher uh, who encounters the archives of the imperial government will ultimately encounter Sergei Vittin, um, minister of finances in the 1890s. A um, uh, through that through that ministry and the instruments of the treasury that, um, that ministry controlled Vita, of course was perhaps most notably known as, um, the, uh, the arbiter of a program of industrial and commercial modernization in the, in the decade of the 1890s and after the turn of the century. Um, one of the standard set pieces of that program was railroad construction, and perhaps the most iconographic um, uh, uh, edifice within that program of railroad construction, which was really empire-wide, was the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Um, the Trans-Siberian Railroad immediately leads you to think of Vita as diplomat, and there is really a subgenre of literature that is developed around this, the railroad leads to entanglements in the Far East and ultimately war with Japan. It leads Vita to real diplomatic activity in the United States where he, where he concludes successfully um, and surprisingly uh, uh, the, a treaty of peace with Japan to end the Russo-Japanese War. He, of course, is a statesman and a state reformer responsible for some of the great reforms um, following the 1905 Revolution, most notably the Duma, but you know the whole period of the October Manifesto has his authorship in important places. Um, so, in that sense, you know, Vita is one of, to use this word again, one of the most iconographic of um, of Russian officials and bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. What's most surprising about Sergei Vita, of course, is that he's also very much a typical Victorian Russian.
0: Right, right, which we'll also get into. Right, um, and so in that sense, he's a man. <laughs> yes, definitely. And,
1: and and I try
0: to tell that story as well. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of your book does concern how Vita understands himself as a man and mm-hmm. and as a statesman. But before getting to that, your book – is a dialogue with a very interesting dialogue with Vita's memoir, The Notes of Count Vita. Uh, mm-hmm. What makes his memoir an important story? And you, you focus a lot on it being a story for understanding this man.
1: Um hmm, that's a that's an interesting question. And I, I I'm going to risk becoming a bit autobiographical here as as well and in delving into you know the the discovery of the dialogue. Um, so the the first approach that one would take to these memoirs is that they're they're published, and they're published in a variety of editions, beginning in the early nineteen twenties. Everyone who researches this period reads the memoirs, or certainly a qualifying exams, has to establish the fact that they're aware of them. Um, and and there, one might think about Henry Kissinger. You know, they're they're very much an attempt to tell Vita's story for posterity, and you then find yourself questioning at almost every turn the veracity of the story that's being told. And it's a story ultimately at one level of the high politics of the late imperial period. He is a bureaucrat. He's a man of hereditary noble background. He is a a man of his class, and thus he tells the story of high politics. But what's most interesting in the encounter with these with the man with the manuscripts themselves is that you find yourself reading Vita on a particular episode or personality of that high politics and you suddenly as if you know you wake up you're at the bottom of a page and um you no longer have the train of thought. Hmm, I've lost, I've lost my attention. I have to go back to the top of the page and read over again. And what you, what I began to realize was that, you know, that he was, I wasn't drifting off. He was drifting off. And that the mention of a person or the mention of an event would oftentimes spark a set of associations that could in fact lead him back to childhood or could in fact lead him back to a previous decade or a previous set of episodes or a previous, or a set of observations, not so much about the personality, but about the social and cultural milieu that, in fact, shaped the personality. So the, the, the dialogue that came to be established between the historian and the autobiography was, and here, you know, I found myself um, uh, with Clifford Geertz. Um, uh, it, 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 it was a dialogue that was best understood as thick cultural analysis. So you were really excavating um, observations that Vita was making in, in his attempt to tell his version of high politics. he was actually, in fact, venting on whole areas of and here I employed the word and started using the word um, he began venting about whole areas of the topographical landscape, of his cultural, social. Political milieu,
0: mm-hmm. and, and that's what I really appreciate about this dialogue of yours is that you do bring out the kind of larger issues that that make up him as an individual, but also outside of him to his relatives and to the social world, the social and private world in which he lives in too. And here I would
1: add, of course, that you know that those that those observations on my part that this venting is taking place and that he's commenting in this sort of way, all of that would have been impossible without the historiographical revolution that I perhaps, you know, a bit too rhetorically proclaim it to have been, but without the historiographical transformation that really was taking place in our field in the 1990s, raising a whole set of really important um, critical and analytical perspectives that, that allow the historian to begin thinking about the dialogue, with the autobiography, the excavation of memory, Um, the you know the examination of imperial polity to name several of the themes that are really central to the book Mm -hmm. well you begin the book um, as Vita
0: did by with his ruminations on his ancestors and his boyhood Um, how did the men and women in his family shape his understanding of himself as a man and his concept of masculinity
1: well, I I, I I argue in that first chapter, which in some ways is the most speculative of, of all, but the one that I enjoyed writing the most. Um, uh, that uh, that men certainly have um, have an impact upon him, uh, and this is I'm thinking of his father, his grandfather, his brother, and his uncle. Uh, a very interesting family. They're middle middling um uh imperial servitors uh the grandfather uh uh mikhail fadyev um serves a lifetime on imperial frontiers and es- essentially establishes himself in um what's of course called uh tiflis in um in the caucasus on that imperial borderland the men provide him a model of loyal service to A monarchical crown, the men make him a monarchist. Um, uh, One is struck by, especially given the fact that he is raised in the Caucasus, one struck by the way in which the men, particularly his brother and his uncle, Rostislav Fadiev, a key uh, pan-slavist in his his own right, the way in which the, the men instill in him Ideals of martial bravery, of um, linkages between masculinity and war. Um, uh, His father is an interesting um, character in that his father, basically a shadowy figure in the memoir, his father leaves him essentially with um, debt uh, and um, some dishonor. Uh, so that if if anything uh, his his father leaves Vita with a very hard scrabble background one, if one was to engage in any psychological analysis here, um, and I, I try to stay away from it as much as I can, the relationship between father and son is very conflicted and very silent in in, in the memoir uh, it 's a a memory of a father that is um, uh, troubled. Uh, and I, I essentially, I think gives him a sense of you know what might happen to a man who doesn't mind his power. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's interesting too, if I may psych- sure. psychoanalyze too, is that he he makes up for that with really idolizing very powerful men. First, his uncle, which is just a, a who's a grand figure, and then later in the book, his his love, as you call it, for
1: Alexander the Third. That's right. That, that that that's very true. Um. Uh. And uh, if I, <laughs> you know, if I had an if I had an extra set of revisions, it would be something that I would have made more of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, just something that just struck me right now when you were talking about his father. So it's and, true,
1: and it, it's true, and 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 very much apropos of uh of the comments about about not only Alexander the the, the third. But interestingly enough, but here in a speculative way, we're moving away from the book too quickly. I think you know his relationship with with Nicholas II, mm, um, right, right, with true. his own son in a, in a sense, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's also interesting, of course, about about the men is that none of the men really give him uh, genealogical gravitas, um, but that, that and hence the the transfer to the, the women, who are equally important. And I really argue there, I think much more so in a very early draft of this chapter, a not particularly friendly critic asked me, why was I spending so much time trying to figure out his relationship with his grandmother, hmm. his mother? Well, this was to really be um crude Russian historians. will understand this immediately. This was an American historian and asked the question. Um, so not to understand my first response was, well, it's the babushka. Of course you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, his, um, his grandmother, uh, Adul Garukaya, actually does, in, in fact, give Vita uh, genealogical gravitas, and any number of commentators comment on how little he emphasized his genealogy by uh, the paternal line and how much he emphasized it by uh, the maternal line. Right, right. Um, what's also very interesting, of course, about the women in his family is that, with the exception of um, of his mother, they're all writers, and they're all very creative. And very imaginative. The most notorious is his cousin Elena Blavatsky, um, uh, Helen Blavatsky, a Theosophist, uh, founder of New Age religion in the Victorian era. Is um, a linkage so powerful that one of the very earliest review mentions of the book, when it was published this spring, came from uh, Theosophy Society, right? Because they picked up on the mention of blavatsky in, in in the book, um, I, I what I argue is that you know that these women were, if you think of them as creative, imaginative writers in the middle part of the nineteenth century, these were quintessentially women of the imperial frontier who were able on the on the borderlands of frontier who were able to exercise a degree of autonomy and creative imagination that would not have been as possible for them in the home uh, metropolis. And it was this here very speculatively, it was this influence. It was this image. It were, it was um, uh, these women as conduits shaping the upbringing, of course, as women were prone to do, the upbringing of, of a boy and an adolescent who um, um, one might argue, and I do, but I leave it ultimately not as... I argue this as a historian, as a biographer, and not as a historian. Uh, I leave it to the reader, ultimately, of biography to decide whether I'm right about this or not, that it was ultimately from the women, more so than from the men of his family, that he came to understand autonomy and creativity and imagination. It was there that he actually. I even speculate. You know, his his grandmother uh, Elena Pavlovna Dolgarukaya um, is a botanist um, and, um, and a, 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 an amateur geologist. And and actually, uh, the the library it, uh, that that she creates is a library of manuscripts and uh, insect collections, butterfly collections, drawings of, of birds and, and fauna, um, stuffed animals and birds. It's a, it's a, it's a place of imagination. And they're very much, you know, writing biography is, is an interesting exercise, um, because your own life is constantly informing it. So when you're trying to ultimately, ultimately imagine the life of a child, um, uh, you, you then begin to wonder, well, where does a child learn to imagine? as a child, learned to be autonomous. Um, what went on in that library? I know a little bit about it um, because it's, it actually shows up in, in the sources. Um, was Vita there? Possibly. Um, uh, so I would say that you know, that men and women shape his, I argue, men and women shape his personality and his identity as a Russian man in important ways, but that, that in important ways, women ultimately are more important in shaping that masculine identity of the men.
0: That's, that's really interesting. Um, now, the next stage in, his, in the, the formation of the young Vita, of course, is his university experience. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, in Odessa, on the frontier, right. and during a very pivotal point in the 19th century during the great reforms.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, how did these, what role did these years play in shaping uh, Vita's transition into an adult?
1: Well, there I play on the fact that um, uh, that that Odessa is the capital city of the administrative territory known as, as as New Russia. And so really what that chapter argues is that those years make for the creation of a new Russian. Um, uh, but this is really is an attempt to go back to the great reforms and investigate that period of time again. That story, of course is you know, traditionally told. Um, in terms of the high politics of the era, if you think about how one would teach that, that that period. So you've got to talk about the legislation of emancipation. You've got to talk about the great reform. So you bring in the Zemstva and you might talk about the birth of uh, liberal ideology and the peculiarities of Russian liberalism. You, of course, talk about the rise of the radical intelligentsia, of nihilism, of populism. Um, you begin to develop a uh, certainly, a sense of uh, of an era of great transition and transformation and change, although ultimately uncertain and ill defined. Um, uh, the break with serfdom plainly not being a full leap into an era of capitalism, and and and, and all the rest. I, I think that story, of course, is, is is perfectly correct for for how far it goes. Uh, then you're sort of left with, you know, Vita, when you come to his memoirs, talking about his university years. And very early on, he actually establishes this um, in talking about his childhood. He insistently says, you know, that he read Sarayuaf, he read the um, uh, but he was a monarchist. Uh, and, you know, you, you get this sense that while people were showing up in, um, uh, radical garb and blue tinted glasses, and women were auditing classes that he actually showed up to university lecture in um, uh, formal day suits and costume. Um, uh, you begin to read memoirs of the 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 period, especially those when he dies who recall these early years, and you know Vita is the center of um, students who he stands out for his brilliance, um, uh, plainly. He's a mathematician, um, uh, chooses to study, unusually so, on the, uh, the mathematics physics faculty rather than the Um Faculty. Uh, claims, I think, probably rightly so, that he um, doesn't uh, go to lecture all that much, um, although he knows the material so well that students study with him for End of end of year exams. Um, uh, Sometimes he's conservative. Sometimes he's actually he is, in fact, the chief funds collector for a student casa that's intended to supply funds for um, uh, impoverished, less wealthy students um, uh, so that they can stay at at university. Um, He utilizes the connections of his family to actually get into university because his own gymnasium preparation is is so poor. He utilizes family connections to, in fact, avoid complications with the city authorities because this student, Casa, is closed down, suspected of political radicalism. So you... You end up walking away from his university years finding yourself struck by several things. First of all, how ill-fitting the stereotype of the radical student is as a a standard blanket explanation of it. And how it is actually that a person who insists that, and in fact the, 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 the evidence available seems to confirm. This insistence, who insists that he's a conservative monarchist, can at the very same moment also indulge in uh, youthful radicalism in a very serious fashion, who can learn about what I suppose now our students would call community organizing, um, who can, um, in fact, um, find in mathematics an intellectual pursuit that allows him, I think, for the first time, he Says this to it to encounter his own intellectual power, and by intellectual power, I mean intellectual horizons and a theoretical and conceptual universe that that pure uh, theoretical mathematics actually provided him. Um, He he becomes a at university, he becomes what I call a synthetic thinker. And what one of the things that's striking about Vita in his subsequent lifetime is that you know, you're really struck by someone who is given a set of um, who can take evidence and concoct broad, sweeping conceptual horizons from, from from that evidence. It serves him very well as Minister of Finance when, of course, the, the conduits of information that flow across his desk are such that it allows him to envision ultimately um, a modern Russian empire as well that, in fact, could survive something like the 1905 revolution. All of that comes from the 1860s. And then you find yourself thinking, hmm, well, what's going on here ultimately? Ultimately, what one sees is the story of the creation of a new Russian. And that new Russian, all the biography can do is is postulate that that new Russian is one of countless new Russians who are being created in the new Russia of of the 1860s. And it then allows you to begin to think about... Um, Russia as part of a European Victorian age um, where these sorts of changes, the kaleidoscopic complexity of what we would call modern life, um, where that kaleidoscopic complexity begins to evolve and develop. And Vitta is both horrified by it and, and luxuriates in it. Right, right.
0: He seems to be quite, has an ambivalence about the, the modern, but also the, he's, he's tantalized
1: by it. And, and completely encounters it in, and not surprisingly in Odessa. And of course, anybody, you know, Bobble's given us a good sense of that city, but anybody who's been to Odessa um, uh, also can see, um, or read, and certainly read about a, a pre-revolutionary Odessa, can see what a, um, what a life um, it must have been in a melting pot like that city, right? Right.
0: Now, after he he graduates, he goes. He becomes a railroad official, and this is actually interesting too. And I'd like you to comment on how this contributes to him as a new Russian. Uh, he becomes. He works for a private railroad company.
1: Well, he he actually when he his, his the the company is being privatized, as he gets a position on the railroad. So of course, the position that he gets on the railroad is via family connections, and it's a state. Run railroad um, that then is within the year privatized,
0: and so, how does so. that experience kind of feed into this him being a new Russian?
1: Uh, well, I mean, you know, here I'll shortcut this as well, and I'll I'll, I'll say here what I tell my students: uh, being on the railroad in the 1860s is the equivalent of being in at the ground level of the internet today. So the the, the railroad as a technology in the 19th century really needs to be thought of. Um, uh, 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 by, by analog to the Internet of the late 20th and early 21st century. It fundamentally changes the way in which humans interact with space and time. Um, so for Vita for, for to become involved with the railroad means to become involved with arguably the technology of the mid-19th century, the cutting-edge technology of the 19th century. And given that the railroad essentially is a um, a conduit of modernity, literally and figuratively, um, uh, his, his encounter with the railroad allows him not only to develop expertise that serves him plainly incredibly well over the next 30 years, because he has expertise in this technology, but the railroad also is is his um, is his conduit to imagine um, a a transforming Russia because the railroad, of course, as it moves through space, as it moves through new cities and towns, as it moves through new markets, actually, physically, of course, is reshaping that shape in um, uh, that in that space. He's very aware of how experimental it is. He's very aware of how novel and new it is. He's very aware of how well established the, the paradigms that predated the railroad, the road, the river, the peasant walking, how established those are. It's not as if is sitting and saying, Oh, you know, I'm Bill Gates. Um, uh, but, he, but, but the railroad, when you begin to trace out his career, first in Odessa, then briefly in St. Petersburg, then by um, uh, 1880, 1881, and into the 1880s in Kiev. The railroad and working on the railroad allows him professional identity, and it allows him imaginative horizons to reconceptualize society, economy, politics, and culture. No question
0: about it. Yeah, this last uh, aspect, that you, what you call dreaming of empire, and in Vita, in the 1880s, you say Vitta, like many of his European contemporaries, he's dreaming about empire. And and here, I think you really see this kind of synthetic thinking that you're talking about. Um, comment on how he con- conceptualizes Russian economy and polity in the empire.
1: Um, uh, in, in some ways... Um, Go back and 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 read the history of uh, of the Prussian Zollverein. Uh, Friedrich List wrote about it, um, uh, and List, of course, as most know, is a an object that of some importance for Vitta in in the eighteen eighties. Vitta basically established. He's a political economist. Ultimately, one one could argue, he he establishes a connection between imperial polity. And imperial wealth. Uh, one certainly, as I was writing this and and and, and developing these arguments, uh, the the contrast between post-Soviet Russia and post-Maoist China was <laughs> very much on my mind. Sure. So, um, so for so for Vita, the capacity of the empire to develop a modern industrial economy. <laughs> was the foundation upon which uh, he believed an imperial polity could be constructed. That a conception of imperial subjecthood, of podenstva, uh, could in fact ultimately rest upon modern wealth. And when Vitta thought about modern wealth, uh, he was not simply thinking about, you know, sort of, wealthy capitalists with whom he interacted with, entrepreneurs and industrialists. He was also thinking about in, in ways that I only came to appreciate recently, even though I've written on this for a long time. He was also thinking about the Mujik. Uh, however idealized um, uh, he, he believed in trickle down economics. Now, one can argue whether that was correct or, or, or not. But he ultimately he ultimately believed that imperial wealth would trickle down to its foundations and that um, that therefore there was this connection between an imp- a stable, modern imperial polity and a wealthy, productive imperial economy. With the latter, the former was entirely possible and, in, and thus in some ways the gold standard and the gold ruble become, uh, you know, a central piece of of this image because of, of and of this sort of of this formula. Once you establish the ruble, once you put the currency on the gold standard, you are actually then are able to. And this is an important final piece of of the puzzle. You're also able to begin to attract to the Russian economy uh, foreign international capital because he very much views Russia not as an autarkic economy, but as um, as part of an international capitalist order. It's the same international capitalist order that critics of imperialism wrote about. It's the same international capitalist order that, for that matter, that Lenin wrote about um, during the, the First World War. It was an international capitalist economy that was, of course, um, in the colonial age, completely transforming the globe. And it was an international capitalist economy that was creating unprecedented levels of wealth across the globe. How do you attract foreign capital? How do you attract international capital to Russia? Um, a, a key part of his plan to enrich the economy and the imperial economy and thus stabilize, the imperial polity and give every imperial subject a stake in that imperial economy. That stake, symbolically at least, was the gold ruble and and the gold standard.
0: It's interesting because as as you're talking about this, I can't help but hear echoes of this in in Russia today and the way the Kremlin conceives of itself as the economy and the state and the relationship between the two with the population.
1: Um, a, 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 absolutely. And with the population almost in some ways being um, uh, being neutered or yeah. or sort of re- rendered as nasilienia, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because it's only when you render it as Nassilienia that Kassudas and whether they're imperial or post-Soviet, can in fact begin to speak for that that population. I would say that um, some of the 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 critical interest uh, and there has been some already in the book from Russia, has dwelled very significantly in, in this whole area.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I definitely want you to, to address that at the end. Now, Vita, of course, besides talking about economics and international finance and, and polity and government, um, he also had a propensity to write about gossip. <laughs> um, particularly in his, his days in Kiev, uh, what how do you explain this is his in his memoirs, writing, evaluating various uh, characters that he uh, has relationships with.
1: Uh, great question, um, and you know, the, the, and, and, and as with everything else in this in this book, and with this man, it has a multi tiered answer. Um, any any listener who, um, as a faculty member, has written letters of recommendation for students going to law school. Um, he uh, has to think about the number of letters of reference that Vitta and his lifetime spent in bureaucracy, the number of times that he wrote letters. So he actually, it's plain, is fascinated by personality, in part because he has to be a good judge of personality. Um, he's renowned, rightly so, as a recruiter of talent, and so he brings talented men, of course. Um, he brings talented men um, and gathers them around him at really every stage of his career. And it's, and, and, and that talent and and his willingness to recruit it is a part of his success, but hence gossip, you know, I mean, he's, he, he tells wonderful stories about people, but he is a, he's a very prescient analyst of, of, of personality. Um, uh, secondly, and here, I guess I'd reference back to the, his boyhood and um, and the women in in his life, he does come from a he certainly comes from a century interested in narrativity. Uh, it's it's the the century of opera, the century of the big thick novel, of the thick journal, of a uh, long luxurious symphony of drama. Um, he luxuriates in narrativity, and he was raised in a household where his grandparents and then his parents after them uh, ran a salon. And anyone who's actually explored, it's largely, I think, in um, uh, literature around uh, women's history and around femininity, but who's explored the, the place of the salon in, um, in, in Russian uh, high society and, and middling society knows how important oral culture was. In, in, in that so on. So he is by definition simply interested in gossip. They all were right. Right. And he tells it constantly. So you finally find yourself at a third level wondering, and this of course is hidden from uh, from the eyes of both the historian and the biographer, uh, you find yourself wondering about so what was it like sitting at Vita's table and <laughs> uh, at, 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 at his social table, you know, Zastal with him and his and, and with his his family. Because that gossip was a currency for his class, in particular, was a, a currency of power. Yeah, and I would, I would, I
0: was, I would guess too that it, gossip it also links up the fact that this is a society that is based in, and Vita utilizes repeatedly on patronage networks. Absolutely, I mean relationships are everything.
1: Right. If anyone's looking for sort of this, you know, the the, uh, the school had it that there was, you know, sort of the two categories that you were always playing with were the personal and the impersonal. Um, and that the only way that the impersonal edifices of power worked in this place, because plainly they didn't work very well at all. Right. (laughs) Was, was via these sort of patronage networks, these personal relationships where, um, geez, gossip was part and parcel of the game. And really one of the challenges of writing the book was, um, resisting the temptation to do <laughs> nothing but indulge the gossip because the stories, of course, are spectacular.
0: Right, right. I, I can imagine. Now, going back to his relationship with men, and in particular, the two, um, basically, his bo- ultimate bosses, Sardar Alexander III and Sardar Nicholas II. First, talk a bit about how did Vita regard Alexander III?
1: Well, um, it, he he hero-worshipped alexander the third um he he argued that had alexander he was and he was really he he was a minority voice in the aftermath of alexander's death because i don't think this was even the majority opinion then he argued that that alexander was deeply wounded by the assassination of his father alexander the second with whom he had a very complex relationship given the morganatic um, marriage um, that Alexander II had at uh, the end of his his life, that the assassination and coming to the throne bloodied um, uh, was uh, something that influenced uh, Alexander, that rendered him a radical conservative, uh, that made him intolerant of public opinion and um, evolving forms of, of, of liberalism. But... Vita always mindful of the fact that, of course, he raised, Alexander raised him to power, and that was not Vita's own self-image at all. Um, And Alexander sponsored um, the industrialization policies of both Vita's predecessors and Vita in the Ministry of Finance. Alexander sponsored um, the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, that had he lived, he would have, in fact, been um, a uh, a more stable, even modern, uh, uh, emperor. I think basically what that translates into in Vita's own thinking is that had Alexander lived, he would have continued to have been advised by Sergei Vita and that thus his whole vision of a more modern Russian empire would have come to fruition. That particular argument though is difficult to extract because it's so fundamentally bound up with his conflicted relationship with, uh, Alexander's son. Nicholas II, a a man of 26 when he comes to the throne, you're reminded only in looking at Vita, a powerful minister of finance at the time in the mid-1890s, surrounded by equally powerful ministers, most of whom are considerably older, 15, 25, 35 years older than their new boss. you're reminded about how conflicted in general that that relationship was given Nicholas's inexperience, um, given, um, Nicholas's, um, inability to decide, um, given, uh, and ultimately given Nicholas's inability to, uh, heed the advice of his father's closest advisor. Um, And and hence I argue that, playing off of Turgenev and fathers and sons, that there's a relation, there's a story of fathers and sons being told here as well, in which ultimately the counselor of the father, when he becomes the counselor of the son, drives the son to distraction, because the son is constantly reminded by the counselor of the father, looms over this man. And I would add one other thing, and this basically then almost moves back into the previous realm of the conversation, to the zone of gossip, um, that uh, at some point in the 90s, I was taken uh, by a a friend and colleague out to Tsarskae Sielo when the... uh, Alexander palace where Nicholas and Alexandra typically lived when they were in residence out there had recently been refurbished and reopened. And one of the first rooms that had been reopened was the study of Nicholas the second. And it's done up in sort of finished wood and it's, you know, sort of very dark and whatnot, but looming over the desk is a life size, larger than life size portrait of Alexander the <laughs> third. It was a huge van. He's a yes. band, you know, He's a Medvede and, yeah. and peasant. And, of course, Richard Wartman has really, you know, has really emphasized I, in, in, in provocative ways how the ideology of Alexander's court was really built around, you know, sort of the Russian and the peasant and the national. Um, Vita, of course, was exactly of the same physical stature. So one can only speculate, but there is no doubt in my mind, especially after having been in that study and seen that portrait, that every time Vita walked into the, into the room, And he walked into the room regularly um, every week and he brought to Nicholas. um, This is what we're doing and this is what we've done. And these are the precedents by which we're doing it. And your majesty, we must move in these directions. Nicholas was always reminded of his father. And there came a time when he just simply could not take it any longer. And I would add a final thing here because to talk about the son and the father requires also ultimately talking about the daughter-in-law and the wife and i think that you know that she becomes the most interesting character and in some ways the, the least studied um, character of, of of all here he's convinced that she ruled the empire as much as he did and i think she grew and the, the sources also establish this, she grew entirely tired of it and and the way that she felt he overshadowed uh, nicholas the second her husband
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, and another thing you point out too is that Vitta Vita's personality seemed to mesh well with Alexander's in the sense that Vita was completely yeah. blunt with him. That's and, right, and this is something Nicholas could not take.
1: Right, because he's very. You know, you I mean you look at some of the. He he is Nicholas. Of course, is the, if if his father is the is in the eyes of the court the the quintessential logique, Um Nicholas is um the quintessential Victorian gentleman. Uh you you know, you see some of the photography around his courtship of Alexandra when he's in um uh especially in in England, and he is a well-bred gentleman. Mult- speaks multiple languages, is well educated, and finds Vit and Vita recognizes this and talks about this at some length, you know, finds Vita's. Frontier, still, the, the, the echoes of his frontier upbringing and the crudity of that um, to be off putting, I, I, I think would be um, the statement that the Victorian gentleman might make. He finds Vita of off putting, uh, among all sorts of other things as well.
0: Well, wow. And it also goes back to the fact the importance of relationships. Even though Vita is this very accomplished, intelligent, capable administrator, the personal trumps all of that at the end
1: absolutely. There's a the, the, there's a an episode that um, I'm forgetting offhand whose memoir this comes from. Um, uh, it's actually in Vitas and he's recounting um, a, a conversation with I believe it was Murav um, uh, although I might have this 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 wrong. In which Vita um, uh, queries why it is that when the decision is finally made to seize Port Arthur and establish a naval base there, a position that he opposes, um, why it is that um, uh, Muravyov, who also opposed the decision, didn't resign. Um, and um, uh, the, his Conversationalist uh, simply responds that well, the, he's a loyal servitor and it's his place to obey. And, and Vita basically comments to himself in the memoir that, you know, well, the, he recognizes this. Um, he too is a loyal servitor. He too recognizes the need to obey, but his personality is such that he just can't keep his mouth shut. Um, to paraphrase. Now, in the last.
0: 15-plus years of Vitz's life, he's, at, he's really at the center of two key historical events. First, as the chief negotiator in the Treaty of Portsmouth to end the Russo-Japanese War, which takes him to America and to, to diplomacy, as you, as you said earlier. And, of course, the pivotal moment, the Revolution of 1905. Uh, talk about Vitz's role in these two events and, and how they shaped his understanding of reform in Russia, where Russia should be going.
1: Well, of course, I mean, in the first instance, for, particularly for people of his class um, and at the heights of high politics, the two episodes were fundamentally interrelated. Um, the war caused the revolution and the upheavals that followed and ultimately the resolution of um, the October Manifesto and, and its political sett- settlement that, that that ensued in the aftermath of the revolution. And depending on your point of view... Uh, you uh, and, and the time that that point of view was articulated, you either, um, uh, uh, you were blameworthy. Uh, you caused the war and thus the revolution and thus the political settlement. Um, and, and and Vita, um, who, of course, in constructing the Trans-Siberian Railroad, drove Russian affairs toward the Far East, as David uh, Schimelpennik in particular has, um, has, has rightly in, um creatively argued, um, uh, Vita was fundamentally responsible in that respect for uh, for the entanglement in the Far East and ultimately war with Japan and thus the revolution as well. So the first thing to say is that the two are are, are, are connected. Um, uh, secondly, while he's expelled from power in the summer of 1903, uh, His conflict with Vyacheslav Pleva comes to a a crescendo. Vita loses um, power; he is displaced, Um, uh, and so ultimately, between 1903 and the outbreak of uh, of of the war in in 1904, he is sitting in the as chair of the Committee of Ministers and largely a ceremonial post. And while he's operating in the back corridors of power, has very little control over the actual moves that in fact lead to war. So the level of his responsibility is in my eyes, um, while, while it's necessary to, to to emphasize that there are others principally his emperor who are much more responsible for, um, the entanglements and ultimately the outbreak of, of the war. Uh, Vita's primary involvement in the Russo-Japanese war is, um, uh, uh, the Peace Treaty and finding a way of actually um, extracting Russia from what is a deteriorating military position in in the Far East. Historians argue about the extent to which um, uh, that that position had deteriorated to a place where Russia had been defeated. But in Vitsa's eyes, Russia had been By um, the spring of 1905 had been defeated for all practical purposes. It had lost its naval power. It had um, even prior to Tsushima and that disastrous naval defeat, it had suffered uh, military defeat on land, leading to minimally stalemate, if not not defeat on land as well. Um, And and in particular, given his own concern with the economy, um, had led to a situation where the domestic economy in the empire's balance of payments uh, was being fundamental, were being fundamentally threatened by the continuing um, uh, prosecution of the war. This, this basically makes him a a proponent of, of peace. Um, uh, Nicholas is uh, hell bent on continuing to prosecute uh, the the war. Uh, He in particular, when he begins to move toward, Peace given the peace feelers that come from Theodore Roosevelt in the United States principally. Um, he is, needless to say, reluctant um, to bring Vita back to power to prosecute the peace negotiations and cast around for almost anybody else to do it, but can't find anybody else to do it. So Vita um, ultimately in the early uh, summer of uh, late spring, May, June of 1905, is called by Nicholas back to power, made um, a czarist pleading potentiary um, to the peace conference that has now been organized in the United States and goes off to, um, to America. Two things to be said about those, uh, about that, that, that period of, of his life. Um, uh, plainly, he brings all his uh, creative power, all his intellectual breath, and all of his um, accumulated uh, uh, bureaucratic experience uh, to bear on, on on that peace treaty, and there's some really wonderful source material that details the the negotiations and the, the role that he actually played. And uh, he plays a for anybody who's listening who plays poker, he plays a game of, of poker here that um, is really quite quite remarkable and physically fatiguing. Um, uh, and I think it in, in fact it ages him. Uh, tremendously. You can see it in photographs. It's, uh, it's quite remarkable. Actually. Um, it's something akin to what Americans notice when they look at American presidents and begin to realize my age. Um, that's, that's true. Of Vita in this period as well, the other thing that's really very interesting, though, um, is his encounter with America. Um, and, and, and here, you know, that, that encounter helps one helps the biographer think about the Vita who's portrayed in this book generally, um, uh, Boy, he's a Russian who, who took to America um, and who found it an intoxicating place. Um, the one, one, one example in this regard is um, his relationship with the press in, in the United States. Vita uh, fully understood the power of the modern press and used it to, um, to great effect um, from his time as a, as a railroad administrator in the 1890s through his time as a finance minister in the, in, in the 1890s and, and, and then into the, into the 20th century. He understood the power of the press, he understood the power of public opinion, and he understood the way that money could be used to manipulate the press and to manipulate public opinion. And when he comes to the United States, he plays, he plays like an impresario to the American press corps and to the assembled international press corps, because, of course, wire services are tracking these negotiations. Um I, I, I actually uh had uh, an undergraduate here at Vanderbilt in a in a summer research project read the American press, several major newspapers, uh from nineteen oh four through uh, the end of the peace negotiations in nineteen oh five to see whether or not he could ferret out the editorial line in these newspapers. And it was at, at, at the outset, as the, as the war proceeded, it was extru- it was a, a, an editorial line that was extremely hostile to Russian interests. In, in part because of the reputation of um, obscurantist tsarist autocracy, in part because of um, the persecution of Jews in, um, in in the empire. That editorial line, without exception, shifted by the end of the summer of 1905, and shifts dramatically during the summer of 1905. Now that's as close as I can get um, to establishing a causal relationship, but I I know that Vita worked the press, Um, uh, he talks about it at length, other observers talk about it at length, and I know that the editorial line shifted. Um, That's all I can say, but it gives you some sense of the encounter with America. Um, he was struck by American clothing. He was struck by American youth. He couldn't believe that American university students waited table in this resort town of, of, of Portsmouth, um, and that they then would um, that they then would take off their. No university student, he exclaimed, in Russia would ever think of waiting tables. Um, in, in a restaurant, and yet these young men would do that, and then they would, they would leave the job and they would go off with young women women in, in rowboats in the evening and spend time with young women in, in, in ways that seemed so free, and even the women themselves dressed in ways that was so free and he was um, He was f- intoxicated and flabbergasted by America. And I, I, I do think that that experience um, influences his return to Russia in, um, in the fall of 1905. So now we begin shifting to the other major episode, the 1905 revolution. When, when he returns in September of 1905, of course, I mean, any historian of the 1905 revolution knows that, that, that the all-nation struggle against autocracy, as it's, as it's labeled by the Mensheviks, is in full bloom is in full bloom and full blossom, right? Um, as, um, as he details in a lovely passage in the handwritten um, uh, Tsapisky, uh, all of Russia was in revolt. And he, he, he offers a lovely sociological profile of how he understands all of Russia and all of the multiple social groups who, in fact, have risen, as he said, with, you know, the classic cry from the heart. It's impossible to live like this any longer. And um, Vitta, of course, unlike many of his bureaucratic contemporaries who are existing somewhere between befuddlement and wholesale anxiety and panic about the end of the old regime. I mean, these people feel themselves to be standing on the precipice. Vita thinks it can be fixed. And he thinks that he can fix it. Um, And in part, um, that's not simply his personality, his synthetic intellect, his experience, uh, although it's all of that. I think in part that's coming from America.
0: Hmm, That's (laughs) really interesting. It's
1: it's possible. Um, and, And then, of course, the collision with Russian reality becomes all that much more stultifying. Uh, Stultifying perhaps is even the wrong word because it only becomes stealthifying later on where the, the collision with Russian reality um, becomes a, a component element of the crisis that he begins to experience, right? Because it turns out that it's not quite that easy to fix any longer. And I would add as a sidebar here, and it's always where biographical detail and gossip um, becomes Interesting. I credit this to my colleague David McDonald at the University of Wisconsin, who was the first one to point out that one of Vita's nicknames at the time was Nostra. And Vita actually, in fact, and I found it finally, Vita, um, who suffered from um, nasal cavity maladies of some kind or another. Uh, in uh, in order to treat um, uh, pathology that came from uh, this um, uh, this physiological problem, use cocaine paste. Ah! Huh. And so, actually, when he returned to, from the United States in the fall of 1905, apparently he had a cocaine habit. Wow! So you know, all things are possible. Right, right. <laughs> One would imagine. Yeah. And all <laughs> things all things are crisis ridden at, at at the same time. Um, 1905 and, 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 the, and the Russian Revolution. The classic argument, and I think that, you know, it's in the book as well, the classic argument is that Vitta does see um, wholesale political opposition to um, the existing status quo. Uh, monarchist that he is, he recognizes that the monarchy can only be saved if um, the system of centralized bureaucratic administration from which he had derived all of his power and all of his influence and all of his wealth such as it was um that monarchy could only be saved if that um if that system in fact was um was reformed and transformed and that to um to to split the political opposition to autocracy one had to establish a monarchy that was reformist that um uh met the chief political demand of the political opposition from the center through the liberal left to the socialist left that is a demand for national political representation and in essence for the initiation of a national political life in um in in the empire and, um, and began to um, articulate the reforms that would be necessary to, in fact, meet that, that demand. The State Duma is the, the, the most noteworthy of these reforms, but people who have looked at political history in 1905 know that um, there, there are a whole series of reforms, many of which only are realized in the Stalin period. That Vita either directly authors or that Vita basically summons up from um, the bureaucratic chancelleries where they've been developing over the course of the previous decade or two or even three, or in some instances, dating all the way to back to the great reforms. In order to um, mobilize that sort of bureaucratic activity, Vita um, also creates um, the cabinet, uh, the council of ministers, Soviet Ministrov. And basically establishes a a nascent cabinet government in um in, in Russia and makes himself um the uh, the chair of the council of ministers and indeed um his condition to nicholas um, uh, for uh, for him to assume leadership of a political reform movement that would divert the political opposition to autocracy. His condition for assuming that that role of political leadership is that Nicholas hand him the power of um, of chairing a, a cabinet, of chairing a united government, in in the knowledge that um, Nicholas's own tendencies to meet individually with with ministers, his own indecisiveness, which of course had hamstrung and haunted. Vita during his period as in in his last years of Minister of Finance, that that, those those pensions and tendencies for personal rule would um, only be constrained and corralled by um, bureaucratic institutions, which ironically or paradoxically enough, of course, only tended to reinforce the very centralized bureaucratic administration that was being protested. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And and by the parties.
0: Yeah, Ru- Russia's rule always has these kind of internal, at least I see these internal contradictions. Um, if I may, I have one other substantive question to ask you. Um, I re- I read, the, as you probably know, Putin uh, recently evoked the name of Stolipin, um, as they're planning for his 150th uh, anniversary since his birth. Um and I, I read an article the other day in uh, Gazeta.ru uh, where they also mentioned Vita in, in also in this context. Um what place do you see Vita playing in Russia today? The memory of him, his political stature, and what it means for the modernization of post-Soviet Russia?
1: Um early on, because there has been a you know, there's been a, a, a a, a veritable bacchanalia of interest in Vita over the past 10 years or so. Some of it, you know, driven by, um, uh, uh, excellent scholars, Barisa Nani, Shafiab Gagnelin in, um, in St. Petersburg and they're really spectacular and very detailed, um, archivally based biography of, of, Vita, in the first instance, I, I, I found that the interest in both vita and Stolipin to be a marker, not so much of post-Soviet modernization, but of post-Soviet historical adolescence. So there was, you know, this tremendous rejection of all things Soviet, right. and this adolescent lusting after mm-hmm. all things imperial. Right. And any statesman um, uh, who was noteworthy uh, benefited from uh, from luxuriated. In, in, in that attention, particularly to people whose names were so closely linked to, um, to reform as were Stilipin's and, 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 and Vita's. Um, now I would say that, you know, there's, for, for my case, there's a, there's a, a more interesting, um, contrast between the two men, because ultimately I do think that probably Stilipin understood modern politics better than Vita did. Uh, I think that Vita was, uh, was very much a um, a product of of his era. While uh, Vita sought to save the monarchy and reform the bureaucracy, Um, if one looks at the fundamental laws that he created, uh, one sees there an, an effort to constrain and corral the Duma, to protect the prerogatives of the monarch, to ultimately protect the prerogatives of his ministers, um, to change the status quo but never entirely abandon it because the status quo was something that he fundamentally understood. Uh, one could say literally the status quo was something that he had inherited via mother's milk so that the crisis of 1905 was also ultimately for him a personal crisis as well. He didn't understand, certainly not as well as Stolypin did, he didn't understand the emerging modern parameters um, of, 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 of Russian political life. So I think that actually, if you look at Russia today, there's probably more emphasis upon Stalipin, not surprisingly, than upon upon Vita and a man uh, who was a man of empire. Um, Stilipin was a modern politician whose understanding of power and authority was truly Machiavellian. You know, I mean Machiavelli Machiavelli understood modern political power. Vita was a Machiavellian in the way that he operated within the bureaucracy. But I don't ever I don't think that he understood power and especially authority in the same way that Stalipan did. Stalipan already began to understand political authority in um, in its 20th century context um uh, in in ways that you know that were who would have one could ask who who would have been more at home in a post world war 1 russian mm, empire yeah stolipin a bit to, and i think that you know had stolipin lived it would it, it would have been stolipin or really men of his generation because of Stalipin is a younger man as well it's it, as was nicholas ii um so you know in in that sense i I why would one turn back to vita finally one would turn back to vita finally because of the uh because of political economy and the linkages that were established between imperial polity and imperial economy and while this uh, is not my area of expertise so I like many of of us I'm simply a reader of of this uh Putin I would argue it looks to China and now gets it. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree. (laughs) So in that sense, um, it's not surprising to me that then you look to someone like Stalipin who also understood that polity had to be put at the service of economy. In Stalipin's case, of course, it was, you know, the, the agricultural economy the agricultural economy, only because, as Vita himself had already understood and developed this, the agricultural economy, only because it was the foundation of a modern industrial economy.
0: Well, it's a fascinating book, and I've I've taken up a lot of your time, but uh, you did so well in kind of elaborating on its many themes. Uh, Just to end up, uh, to wrap up the interview, what are you working on now?
1: Well, um, I... um, Vita basically left me a writing assignment. Um, So uh, I I found myself fascinated ultimately by the question of the woman who really ultimately ruled the empire, um, uh, Alexandra Fyodorovna. But I can't find anybody uh, who uh, isn't convinced that that would be the the, the most boring and suicidal project imaginable because no one really takes her seriously seriously. At all. Um, And any of the reading that I've done around her leaves me really sort of perplexed as to how one would write simply a book about her or about them as a couple. But what I've become interested in actually is a book that I'm tentatively entitling um, autocracy and the death of the old regime. So I'm interested in the period of 1914, 1917 and, and 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 returning to the question of. How it was that this class, this um, political structure, and this political culture—how it was ultimately how and why it was that it actually died um, in 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 nineteen seventeen, and what the relationship between the death of the old regime and autocracy, in fact, actually was. So, in this regard, Nicholas and Alexandra become important chapters in a broader book that can also begin to poach a bit, on um, you know, on a literature that's growing quite rapidly around, around world war one. I. I, you know, think for example, because it's sitting here on the desk at the moment about Peter Guttrell's work, not only on the wartime economy, but on, on refugees, um, uh, Hubertus Jan, uh, Josh Sanborn stuff. Um, and you know, that, so the literature is growing to, to such a degree that, um, I'm gonna stick with my traditional interests and see how the beast dies. <laughs> well, this kind of a, a you know an,
0: a revision, a, a a look at an old question in a way, exactly. which is which is good because I think that kind of reevaluating old questions is something that many uh, Russian historians are are not apt to do nowadays. So I, I appreciate I, and I, it. I, and I've, I've done it a lot, so I guess I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna give it one more shot. <laughs> All right. Well, Frank, thank you very much. It was a wonderful interview. Um, so thanks for your time.
1: Sean, thank you very much for the opportunity. I enjoyed it very much. I've been speaking with Frank Weislow about his book, Tales
0: of Imperial Russia, The Life and Times of Sergei Vita, 1849 to 1915. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next time when I talk to Artemy Kelenovsky about his book *A Long Goodbye: The Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan*. Until, until then, goodbye. знать дом, в котором мы живем, повесить. Деньг всё не соберём.